Tonight, we are speaking with Stephen Goldstein, social justice leader on over 200 laws, past executive director of the Anne Frank Center and Garden State Equality, 10-time Emmy award-winning TV news producer and Oprah's longtime producer, rabbinic seminarian and author of HarperCollins' The Turn On, Stay With Us. One hits a likability home run when readers of the New York Times and People magazine all find you likable, when you can appeal on the high road and the everyday road, when you can appeal to an NPR audience and a Saturday Night Live audience simultaneously. are listening to Remarkable Voices, conversations on culture, creativity, and big ideas with your host, Meredith J. Flanagan. Tonight, we welcome the very remarkable Stephen Goldstein. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. Meredith, it is great to be here, and hi to your wonderful audience. Hi, everyone. Yay! I'm so glad we could make this happen. First of all, we have to talk about the book. The book changed my life. Really? Tell me. I'm dying to know. Oh, God. Well, first of all, I never knew that likability was a construct. I read it accidentally. I was gathering research books for my memoir, and the... Uh, jacket reached out to me. The colors were, the branding was excellent. So I had to get it and I could not put it down. I think I read it in two weeks. Um, And the double standards, the likability constructs, the foundation models, it, it captivated me. That is extraordinary. And um, I'm so grateful, Meredith, Maybe we should explain to the audience what it means that likability is a construct, because that is one of the several theses of my book, and it's probably the first one that appears in the book. Please. Sure. So maybe I should tell your audience first, and I'll tell you how I got to my thesis that likability is a construct, how I came upon this book, which dissects likability, comes up with the eight traits and actually 24 sub-traits that make public figures and real people like you and me likable. Um, I started taking notes for this book in 1993 when I was a lawyer for the House Judiciary Committee and had to book guests for hearings uh, that featured all the committee members. And I started to notice what made certain witnesses, ordinary people, persuasive and indeed likable. And I started to take notes and I came up with about 24, 25 traits. Then I went from being a lawyer in the House Judiciary Committee to being a producer for Oprah Winfrey on the turn of a dime. From Friday, I worked in Congress to Monday, I worked for Oprah. 
And people ask me, that's the weirdest thing in the whole world. Not really. I went to law school and journalism school at Columbia, so I got to use both degrees. And I started taking notes as a producer as to what made the best talk show guests, what made them the most likable, which in turn led to high ratings. And what I began to notice is that the qualities that made a likable witness in Congress were more or less the same qualities that made a guest on Oprah's talk show likable. And then through various um, jobs I've had in my career, I sort of feel like Zelig or Forrest Gump. I've done you know many different things. I took notes at each job and found very similar traits. So the book really was 1993 to 2019 in the making. And I thought someday I would write a book, and I finally decided to do it. And when I say likability is a construct, I mean this. Likability is crafted by entourages uh, who work for the person at hand or the person, him or herself. And and I'm talking about public figures. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about ordinary people. At least I and you don't have entourages telling us how to be likable. (laughs) But we – that'd be nice. But at least we, we can learn lessons from from the likability makers who work behind the scenes. And it's not to say, when I say likability is a construct, that I think likability as presented to the public by a particular star is phony. What I say in my book is a likability coach, experts, there are all sorts of likability gurus behind the scenes that I talk about in my book. What those people do is they bring out qualities that somebody already has that may be dormant, but they can't make an unlikable person likable, or they can't make an unlikable person likable for too long, or the person will be found out. So what most people don't understand is Richard Nixon, who in my view was the second most unlikable president in history, we just concluded with the most unlikable president in Trump. Richard Nixon actually hired a likability expert. He hired uh, one of Jack Parr's producers. Jack Parr was uh, the guest host of The Tonight Show before Johnny Carson around uh, 1960. And when Richard Nixon decided to run for president, uh, which was basically throughout the 60s, uh, after he lost to Kennedy, he was running for president again in 68. He hired a likability guru who told Nixon to play piano and who told Nixon to appear on Rowan and Martin's Laughing in 1968 to look like a, a much lighter, more jovial person. Well, Nixon did appear on Laughing. His opponent, Hubert Humphrey, did not. And Hubert Humphrey credits Nixon's appearance and Humphrey's own refusal to appear on Laughing with Humphrey's losing the election. Right. In that sense, likability was a construct. Richard Nixon was not likable, so eventually he was found out and driven out of office. So you can't fake it too much. So the public figures I've worked with, yes, they may have likability experts working with them, but they they tend to be not scoundrels. They tend to be more or less likable people. And uh, so I take readers through the process in my book of how a likability expert or different kinds of experts make a public figure more likable. And then I go into the eight traits of likability. Right. There's always a foundation that they start yes. from, that they, they're always expounding on or going to be exposed from. Right. So, Meredith, I, what I say in my book is there are eight traits to likability. 
and we each person unveil them in four stages of two traits each. And I say the first pair of traits that we reveal are captivation and hope. Now, what does captivation mean? Very simple. Don't be boring. Now, Meredith, you host a podcast, right? The worst thing you could have in the whole world, and what I feared as a congressional lawyer who booked witnesses or as a talk show uh, producer or a television producer is not guests who are over-emotional, not guests who are argumentative, dead air, guests who are boring, is a broadcast and podcast nightmare. You just want to die. Yeah. And it's right. And like, listen, an argument is an argument and a debate is a debate on TV. It's more or less riveting television unless it gets carried away. But to, to have to be stuck with a boring guest. So captivation, I say, is the art of not being boring. And I talk about my book, well, how not to be boring. If you're basically a terribly boring person, you can't really be interesting. But as I say in my book, listen, if you're of average interest, read my book and you could become way more captivating. Okay. This is one of my favorite things about the correlation between your career working for Schumer, Senator Schumer, then Senator Schumer, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. as a producer for Oprah. You, quote, booked emotional guests as a producer for Oprah who could move the audience to tears, astonishment, or both. Like the other producers, you liked high ratings, but you had an activist's motive to achieve them. The more people you reached, the more you could persuade them through Oprah to act on the issues closest to your heart, just like you did when working as a staff lawyer for then-Congressman Chuck Schumer and booked the same type of witnesses to move members of Congress to the same emotional feelings and get press coverage to advance Schumer's causes. Yeah, and Meredith, one hits a likability home run when readers of the New York Times and People Magazine all find you likable, when you can appeal on the high road and the everyday road, when you can appeal to an NPR audience and a Saturday Night Live audience simultaneously. Look, we can educate people, but if we're pills about it, we're not going to motivate them to change. They'll tune out. Mm. So the hardest thing to do in persuade of persuasion in the media, the hardest way to come across as likable in the media or in person is how can you be both entertaining and contribute to the public good? If you're just entertaining, listen, you're a freak show. And if you're just about contributing to the public good, well, you are NPR, but when I'm a listener of NPR, but that's a very limited universe. How do I, as a television producer or somebody who worked in other fields, entertain and motivate the most people I can to take action to make this world a better place? So, I, you know, coming from a public interest background and uh, I'm a progressive activist. I didn't write this book 
to try to show people how to become more likable for nefarious purposes. I have a very real public interest bent in the book as I do in my life. And I also talk about the obstacles that members of oppressed communities face, uh, particularly women, people of color, and members of the LGBTQ community, yes. of which I'm one. Yes. And I got to tell you something. I think women have it the toughest. Women have it the toughest. Um, you know, I know many women who are also members of the LGBT community, and they tell me, Stephen, I have it way harder as a woman than I have it as a lesbian. And I said, you're kidding, really? And of course, I know that's true. Um, but to hear it as often as I do is unbelievable. And women are held to a different standard, namely the fact that women's likability is questioned to an extent that men's likability isn't. Women in the public eye, like Hillary Clinton, face this question, Hillary, are you likable enough? Mm -hmm. People don't ask men that. Right. Are you likable enough? It's sexist. Right. It's sexist. It's gross. And I go into all the reasons uh, why why women face this this double standard. And it, it's enraging. And, and, you know, the chapter where I talk about double standards and biases was my favorite chapter to write. And it took me about 90 minutes to write with the rest of the book. <laughs> the rest of the – honestly, the rest of the book, I would say uh, about a month or two. Oh, uh, wow. Per, per, or three per chapter. Some of the, some of the chapters took six months. Um, a couple of chapters took six months, but the double standards chapter because I'm a civil rights leader and organizer. Right. All the statistics were in my head. The thesis was in my head, so it came out like an anthem. And I confess that uh, I love doing that because uh, listen, I'm a I'm a progressive activist, and that that chapter was the joy of the book for me. So I, I, I had a blast. Stephen, reading the double standards chapter was at once enraging, informative, and enthralling. Yes. Uh, yes. And it was interesting because um, my publisher and those who read my manuscript, you know, when I said I wanted to do a double standards chapter, I think they were afraid I was going to go too academic-y preachy because – Listen, it's a it's a juicy book. I sort of walk the line between uh, an academic book and a mass market book, um, and I try to do that on purpose. And they were afraid. Oh, Stephen, listen, we agree with you on these double standards, but is this really going to be just an egghead chapter? And I I hope it wasn't. It doesn't I don't think feel it that way. It does not feel that way. And I, I would really love to see people on the other edge of the spectrum spectrum read it. Um, yeah. and, and get their reaction. Um, because I was so exposed to, and I'm, I'm not afraid to say, um, ideas that I knew nothing about that. I right. was, Thank of course, that I, I'm always ready to admit things that I don't know, because there's always more to learn. I mean, I, you know, if you don't know something, you're being educated and that's really important all the time. Um, but especially, uh, the, to me, what was really, uh, especially affronting was the Alec Baldwin comeback versus the angry black man. Yep. That was who blood curdling. Right. I so mean, what I, yeah. Oh, what it's, a, he, and, and you know, listen, 
I'm very upfront in my book about my my natural bias, which is I'm a progressive Democrat and I I've worked for Democratic candidates. However, I say it up front and I really try my best not to make it a love story that people who agree with my views are likable and people who don't are unlikable. I found Ronald Reagan eminently likable. There are conservatives with whom I agreed on nothing Mm -hmm. and I find them likable. Listen, I agree with Alec Baldwin's politics. Okay. He's a, he's a progressive. Alec Baldwin has had a couple of decades of outrageously disgraceful behavior where he's threatened gay people, where he said the most unfortunate biased statements against all sorts of oppressive groups. Mm-hmm. And he's a media darling. Uh, frankly, right. the the best thing that ever happened to Alec Baldwin was Donald Trump. Exactly. Because Alec... Right. Alec Baldwin. Listen, Alec Baldwin was in the news, I don't know, once every couple of years, roughly, more or less, for not great reasons, that he he has a terrible temper, right? A horrible temper. Um, if he were black, he'd be called the angry black man. Right. If he were if he were white, he's given a chance for redemption by playing Donald Trump. Black men don't get the same grace and courtesy that Alec Baldwin has had. Exactly. Could you imagine if Colin Kaepernick acted like Alec Baldwin? No chance. Colin, no chance. Colin Kaepernick would be in jail. Maybe Colin Kaepernick wouldn't be alive. Right. Unfortunately, because there's a double standard. That's the double standard that. That's the double standard. That's a but. Colin Kaepernick, he just kneels peacefully, and Alec Baldwin, like a crazy person, does this and that. Listen, you know who else? Acted like insane. Um, Somebody from the opposite end of the spectrum, Brett Kavanaugh. Brett Kavanaugh acted like a raving, screaming lunatic in his defense uh, during his Supreme Court hearing that he did not commit sexual abuse. Could you imagine if an African-American person did that or a Latino person? Could you imagine if a woman did that? Exactly. Brett Kavanaugh is a... Brett Kavanaugh's a white man, so it's passion. It's coming from the heart. He's outraged with righteousness versus if a black man did it, Brett Kavanaugh would be analyzed as outraged psychopath. Full body chills. It's a double standard. Yeah, that yeah, that is standard. the double standard, right? That's the, yep, that's yep. the exception. Um, and it bothers me. Listen, I'm not African-American. I'm not Latino. I'm not a woman, Right. But the, the, listen, who we are as human beings is really tested by we, whether we have empathy for people who, who we're not part of that community along with them. You know, I, 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 okay, it's great when I march or lobby for causes that affect my own community. I get a special thrill. I worked in Congress on a woman's right to choose. I was one of the few male staffers on women's issues. And I felt it with all my heart. I know I can't say I had personal experience as a woman, but I opened my heart up. And uh, hopefully I showed some of that in my book. I'll say it uh, I'll say it again, Stephen. This book changed my life. I've recommended it to a lot of people that are close to me and a lot of people that aren't close to me because I believe in this book. Um, this is why I reached out to you. Um, 
one thing that that touched me in the book is Zedek, 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 the Torah instructs you in Hebrew, justice, justice, you shall pursue. You are a civil rights activist on over 200 laws. How much of this has influenced you in your life as a civil rights activist? My future about my philosophy or you're talking about my likability thesis? Your philosophy. Oh, you know, so deeply. So um, listen, I am a progressive activist member of the gay community, feminist, active on progressive issues across the board. And as I tell readers in my book, I'm now in rabbinical school to fulfill a childhood dream I had when I was seven years old. And my parents, this is, it's almost like a, a funny joke. I said, mom, dad, this is when I was seven. I want to be a rabbi. And basically the answer was, what kind of job is that for a nice Jewish boy? It doesn't make any money. Be a doctor or a lawyer. Don't be a rabbi. <laughs> you, you, you would think that when I told them at age seven, and they're not religious, they would serve shrimp on Yom Kippur. They, they, I don't know where I got this from. And when I say I'm, I'm religious, I'm progressively observant. You know, I'm a, I often say I'm Seinfeld's version of a left-wing Jewish guy from the Upper West Side who – believes in God and is studying to be a rabbi and loves my faith. Um, so these values have been with me my whole life to make a difference. And uh, when there's injustice in the world, I will tell you, I see red and nothing can stop me. And like, I'm a bull in the China shop. And uh, some, someone asked me, which of my traits would I say most people apply to me? And I'll exclude captivation because that's the gateway trait that anybody halfway likable mm. has to have. For me, it's protectiveness. <gasps> Pe people know, people know that when you engage Stephen Goldstein, he's going to be a fierce fighter oh. on your behalf and never leave you and never back down and hang in there and stick with it until you're okay. And that's my trait. And that's probably what most people would say. Okay. <laughs> I just gasped because I have all of the traits, the main foundational traits listed. And when you said, if someone asked me, I circled the protectiveness. Yes. About so, you. <laughs> that's the one. That's, that's the one. That's cool. Thank God I know myself a little bit because if I weren't self-aware, it would not be a good book to write for somebody not self-aware. But I will tell you, Meredith, that I'm the most open, disclosive person possible. The, the, the ability to write this book didn't come merely because I have had so many jobs in so many different professions, uh, ranging from the law to politics to media to so many other professions. It's that I'm a self-actualized person who's been in talk therapy for decades. Mm. So listen, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. But when you've had talk therapy for, for decades, I think you just kind of see things in a different light. And um, these days I'm a single person. And one of the first questions that I ask a date is, have you ever been in, in therapy? And if they answer defensively, no, like I'm asking something bad, I, I, I tend not to succeed with them. For me, you know, therapy has given life a different dimension. I'm very grateful for it. And uh, so I think that made writing the book easier and gave me some skills that, uh, I, am, that I wouldn't have otherwise had. I am always suggesting therapy to people. And I, <laughs> I don't mean it to be offensive. I just believe I in it so much. Like, 
Meredith, I know. I have to tell you something. So, so when I run organizations, I have my very public calendar. I'll put therapy or shrink. There's no stigma. Like, what do I care? Like, like I want you to have the best life. I want. Yes. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't understand society. Like, why is it different than going to a doctor? Why is it different than going to a spa to work out? Why is it different than going to a health? Because we I don't know. Why? glamorize self-care. We don't glamorize mental health. Well, I think it's glamorous. Let's make it glamorous. <laughs> I know. You and I, let's make Can it glamorous. Let's make it glam. Let's do it together. <laughs> Yeah, I, I want to be glad. Best thing, you know, it's. I think I know. It's a lot I know. About I know. Christopher Lash, is it Christopher Lash, or Christopher Lash is the culture of narcissism. I think that had a lot right. to do with it. Made yeah. this whole therapy's bad. You know, the the analysts of the '60s being the whole the whole deal. You know, but I I think it's the most fantastic thing. Um, I know. I do too. I do too. So, and um, you know, and it it. In therapy, I started to think about a lot of the subcategories of traits that I wrote, and uh, and it helped. It really did help write the book. And so why did you write this book? Again, you know, Meredith, it's interesting. I I wanted to help people who aspire to change the world have more tools Mm. to do it. It's not like, here's what I didn't want to do. I didn't want to write a Dale Carnegie book. Yeah. uh, How how to win friends and influence people and all that. No, I'm only interested in how you win friends and influence people. If you want to do some good in the world and to do good in the world, you better captivate people, interest them and you better educate them. But if you're going to do that, there are all these traits you better have. Mm -hmm. So I really viewed this book as an extension of my public interest work. Uh, it would be so funny if you took the test in the back yourself. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Well, Barry, I have to let you in on something very personal. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I, you know, I, again, I'm just so open. I, I swear to God, in another life, I was uh, Sophia from the Golden Girls because yes. whatever's on the mind. We have an expression in Yiddish, if it's on the lung, it comes out the tongue. I think that's me. So listen, as I was starting to write this book, I was in a relationship with my ex, uh-huh. my uh, husband of 23 years. That relationship and that relationship lasted from 92 to 2015. So 23 year relationship. As I started to write the book and as I was developing the traits over the years, he read, he read like a proposal. My first proposal, I wrote a 30 page proposal for publishers and he said, you don't find me likable, do you? And I said, what are you talking about? He said, I'm reading this treatise that you wrote, this proposal for your future book. And I'm looking at all these traits and subtraits, And I think you don't think that I have them, he said to me. And I said, that's preposterous. But Meredith, oh. my heart, my heart sank because he was right. Oh, sweet jeez! All uh, right, that's not the analogy I would use, but I'll take it. Listen, <laughs> right, exactly. So, right, so you know what? And by the way, 
my ex was one of the most brilliant people on the face of the earth. He still is. Uh, I've never dated or met anybody as smart as he. When he said this, I just, he thought on some subconscious level that our relationship was a basis for my writing likability traits and what by extension is not likable. Maybe he was right. Maybe he was right. I can't, I can't say that he wasn't. And I will tell you this. So I, I'm dating now and I feel like writing another book on dating. And, <laughs> be and, careful. And, and, I, I know, be careful, right? And I spend a chapter talking about how likability is like dating, how people unveil the four pairs of likability traits as if they're going on a date. Well, before the pandemic, I would date a lot. Zoom dating is the worst. So before the pandemic, I would date. I'm starting to pick up dating again since I'm twice vaccinated carefully. Okay, so <laughs> a few dates said to me, it was unbelievable. Like at least three, three said to me, actually. They said 10 minutes into the date. So which of the eight traits do you think I have? No. Yes, in the middle of, like, not in the middle, like 10 minutes into the day. Okay, right. But listen, listen, they didn't, there was no preamble in all three cases that, oh my God, I read your book. Is it, is it, isn't it, isn't it, isn't it funny how you're on a date now, but you talk about going on a date and how that's similar to likability? No, they all sprang this question on me. Which of how many traits do you think I have? Which traits do you think I have? Like, and, and, and one date asked me with, with, with no context. He said, so I have a question, Stephen. And he said, first of all, I know not to call you Steve, which I write about in my book. I just always right. come by Steve and I go, I go, oh, my God. Oh, my God. What's coming? What's coming? He was like the third, the third person to ask me. So I was used to it about my book at, with no context. He said, do you find me captivating? He said, in the middle of a date. And, you know, listen, I like truthfulness, but I also not like not to be a jerk and insult anybody. He was the most boring date in the entire world. Oh. And, and then he asked me, I said, of course, you're so captivating. Just, I just, why lie? Because you don't want to hurt anybody. <laughs> and, and then he says, and then, like the very boring person he was, he said to me, Tell me, what's captivating about me? This, like, could could there be anything more boring than telling somebody who's they're telling somebody who's boring how captivating they are when he asks? It was so meta. I, oh, I was like surrealistic. Steven. I thought I would. I just oh my I would God. have walked away. Right, I would have gotten up from my seat and. I have left date. Well, I did go. To, I did go to the bathroom, and I told a friend to call me ten minutes. Oh God, I that did. is a horrible. I mean, what was he thinking? Right, <laughs> it's the most awkward thing I've ever been asked. I mean, that's what I guess. That's what happens if you write a book. If you go on dates, that's the danger. You you risk people just becoming complete narcissist about it. I'm Complete narcissism. Not. Let me tell you. It, let me tell your audience members who are single or who are cheating. If you ever go on a date, I'm not judging you if you're single or cheating. But if you ever go on a date and somebody asks you, are "You captivating?" Tell them you're the most captivating person who ever lived. So captivating that there are no words to describe it. Maybe that will shut them up Please. because 
there's nothing that people would like more than for you to tell them why they're so fabulous. Look, that's like going on a first date, sitting down at the second drink and saying, am I beautiful? You know what, Meredith? I have gone on dates with such people. <laughs> let, 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 let me tell you. <laughs> yeah. No, I've gone on dates with people, right? Mm-hmm. No, no, no. No. So, Meredith, the, 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 I have to tell you, the gay male version of that is I've gone on dates with people. One date pulled out, like, topless, shirt, shirtless photos to show me his worked out body. Hey, I have pictures. Do you want to see them? We're 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 having drinks. We're somewhere in Manhattan, and all of a sudden, he he and I I don't drink much, but some of these dates I learned because I just wanted to get through the date. He's pulling out pictures of himself where he's wearing a thong, but he's also sitting at the table next to me in a suit and tie coming from work, and this is basically R and I beautiful. And, and I would just say, why are you showing me these pictures? Like like if the date goes well, I assume I'll see it. Sure. So. Calm down. (laughs) That is what you call la classe. Yeah, no. So it's quite something else these days. Oh my goodness. You know, I I tell my husband, I don't know what I would do if I was out there right now because I don't know what dating is right now. You know, Meredith, dating, which is mostly online right now, Mm -hmm. it makes likability even more of a construct. Mm. Because listen, in the there were before online dating, there were many more in-person pickup joints, regardless of whether you're straight, gay, bi, whatever you are. People tended to meet much more in person. And if you meet somebody, if you pick up somebody at a bar, you're, you can only fake it so much. You are exuding something in person. While you, while you can't be judged as to the kind of human being you are, somebody is looking at you in person. When you are online, you are removed from that. Right. And you can create your own construct. And so it makes the gap between having chemistry uh, through the app or texting very big often versus how you find them in person. Because online dating makes likability a construct. Right. Well, I have heard that the more you're in communication with someone over the phone or texting – uh, the more synthesized your relationship is, right? You've yeah. feeling, you know, them. So uh, my best story with dating was not for me. So a dear friend of mine, she said, Stephen, do me a favor. Will you write my, my personal ad, my ad for match Aww. and the other services? And will you use your likability construct? And so, um, <laughs> I felt like Cyrano de Bergerac. So I wrote <laughs> one of my favorites. I, 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 yeah, I wrote I wrote her profile. And she was a, a beautiful woman. She got hundreds of responses. And from that profile, she uh wound up dating the most wonderful person. I don't know, I don't think they lasted, but uh and I don't know. I'll, I'll keep the name secret because I don't know if she ever told him. Oh, he's famous. You know that. No, no. These are ordinary people, but you never know if, if let the fantasy uh, continue that she wrote the profile. Ah. And she's a, an, 
She's an absolutely wonderful human being. So she really is likable. Now there's, there's how I put my lessons into action. She's a likable human being. I just knew how to write a profile that brought out her likability. So my construct wasn't, I wasn't building her likability out of nowhere. I found her an incredibly likable person. I knew how to present it. Mm -hmm. You knew how to protect her likability, which is one of the clincher traits. Yeah. And he was, this guy, of course, was so straight and I'm thinking, and he was so beautiful. I'm thinking, you responded to a gay guy's ad, and you don't know what it is. <laughs> he didn't know. Right, and so that, that's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, God, I wish this guy could play for my team. Yeah. But, um, but, yeah, it's funny. You know, um, the book is so, so good. I I want everyone to read it. I want – it's to me <clears> – it's just a game changer. Thank you. Man. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I think we should do a part two for Garden State Equality. I really do. Okay. Listen, I'm, 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 whatever you need, I'm here. You got Beautiful. it. Beautiful. Okay. Thank you so much. Tell people, let's, let's let people know how they can get in touch with you and, and where they can get your book. Sure. Just stevengoldstein.com. S-T-E-V-E-N. The V is for very gay. S-T-E-V-E-N. Goldstein. G-O-L-D-S-T-E-I-N. That's for very Jewish. I'm, I'm pretty much a walking, talking stereotype. I promise not. It's just a, a joke. But stevengoldstein.com. And you have all my contact information there. And I would love to hear from any member of your audience. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Absolutely phenomenal. Um, so, so, so glad we could have you on tonight. Stephen's Thank you, my, my pleasure. Stephen's new book is The Turn On, which is about likability constructs published by Harper Collins. Our team at Remarkable Voices includes our editor, Patrick Flanagan, and myself. You can listen to Remarkable Voices wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for joining us. Once again, I'm Meredith J. Flanagan. We'll see you again. <laughs>